as you guys that are here fairly regularly know, I've taken opportunity to kind of talk our way through 1 John, and so we're going to continue that today. And so we're going to be in chapter 3. Um, of course, I tell you guys to turn there, and I haven't actually gotten there myself. Um, but in 1 John, we've noticed a few themes as we've gone along. Like any writer, um, John has certain ways that he likes to relate things. Um, I don't particularly enjoy the act of writing because I've never been great at it. Um, it's a struggle for me to put my thoughts on paper. Um, spelling, grammar is not really the issue, though I'm not the best at that. I can do that part okay, but it's just hard for me to f form thoughts that flow well on a sheet of paper or on the computer or whatever. But even me, as a terrible writer, I recognize that like, if I look at things I've written, I say things certain ways a lot. And I even use certain words more frequently than other people might. And John's no different than any other person that's ever written. He's got things that he likes to say, ways he likes to say them. And as we've been talking through this letter, we've seen some of those. Um, certainly, we've been studying in our Bible class through the, the Gospel of John. And so as we preach through one of his letters, we see a lot of the same language used. He talks a lot about light and darkness. We've talked about that through these chapters. He also talks uh, really generally in terms of contrast. So light and darkness is one. Love and hate is another one that we're going to see even in chapter 3 predominantly. To love your brother, right, is one thing. And if you don't love your brother, that means you hate your brother. Like there's not a lot of middle ground with John. Um, another thing that he talks about is the spiritual and the world. And there's not really a middle ground. He's going to say you're either walking with Christ, pursuing spiritual things, or you're in the flesh, experiencing carnal things. That's the kind of language John uses. Well, 1 John 3 is no exception to this. And as we continue moving through the letter here, I want to offer a little bit of a recap um, really, really quickly. So in chapter 1, the emphasis is on the word of life. You may even have a heading for chapter 1 that says something like that concerning the word of life or about the word of life. Um, and John makes the point that just like Genesis 1, just like John chapter 1 in the beginning, right, is the word which we have heard, right? And even he talks about how the testimony has been given about that word. And of course, as you read through that, he talks about how they've looked and touched and felt that word. Right, that word being Jesus. And as he moves through his writing, he talks about how that testimony, that, that experience of Jesus, that gospel, we would call it, right, um, really has led them to walk a certain way, and that's in the light. Walk like Jesus walked, because we felt and we understood his message. We know who he was, and so let's, let's do what he did. Well, chapter two really is how Jesus, and if we look in this, has given us a new commandment that is both new and old. And that is, um, he says in verse eight of chapter two, uh, oh, sorry, not verse eight, verse seven, sorry, that you have heard from the beginning. It's new and it's old, uh, but it's to love your brother. Well, that really relates to chapter 3 because that's what he's going to talk a lot about. In fact, in chapter 3, John expands on the idea of loving your brother. Not that 
he gives us some facet of loving our brother that we weren't practicing, but that he tells us maybe some of the ramifications or the effects spiritually that loving our brother really carries with it. Um, So let's begin reading in chapter 3 here. Um, And loving our brother from chapter 2 stands in contrast to maybe just loving the flesh or loving the world. Um, So chapter 3, let's read beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to stop there for a moment. In these first three verses, John says a couple of things that I want to kind of uh, slow down on here. In verse 1, um, he's, he's building on the idea that at the end of chapter 2, he introduces to us. And of course, I would never encourage us to only consider any part of John just within itself. It's in a letter, right? Like chapter 2 is not distinct from chapter 3. So... I want us to look back at chapter 2, verse 28. He says, Little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given that we should be called children of God, right? John begins by emphasizing that Christians, people that have felt and seen and even heard the testimony of Jesus Christ and have believed it and have begun to walk in the light, the language that John uses, really have experienced a rebirth. Um, It's similar to what John wrote about with Nicodemus, right? When Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus in the middle of the night, he has a conversation with Jesus about being born again. And Nicodemus at the time, and I think fairly so, was totally confused by the conversation. I probably would have been too. And he starts asking questions like, what does it mean? Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? Like, what are you even talking about, right? We can imagine him saying things like that. Well, John is telling the Christians many many decades later the same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus in uh, the gospel when Jesus was ministering. But he's saying it in a slightly different way. But what he's telling them is the love that the Father has given to us, we can be called children of God, and so even we are. You have experienced a rebirth. In fact, this rebirth informs your relationship with the world. That's what he says. Because you've been reborn, continuing in verse 1, the world doesn't know us. In that, it did not know him. When we're born of Jesus, writers like Paul would talk about this differently than John would. John uses language like he does here, being children of God, being reborn. Paul might say when you're baptized into Christ. Right? Um, Peter might talk about being circumcised in the, in the spirit. Right? Different writers say it different ways, but we understand what they mean by that. And each one of them would say that that changes your relationship with the world. And the way that John relates that to us is that, you know what? 
The world's going to relate to you just like it did Jesus. It's not going to know who you are. And in verse 2, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There are a couple things in this besides being reborn and besides the world not knowing who we are that are worth kind of zeroing in on here. Because believers, and looking at this room right now, I would just, I think all of us probably would fall into this camp scripturally as believers, walking in the light. Because you and I have a unique parentage, the Lord, Jesus, the world doesn't know what that is. They don't have a way to relate to that. And because they don't have a way to relate to that, I think experientially, that's kind of an unfortunate thing because we see what that presented to Jesus. Like we see the, the negative outcome that that brought. In fact, Jesus even talked about, you're not greater than me, so you'd expect the same things to happen to you. And he offered that in a negative context, talking about how he's had nowhere to lay his head and talking about how people have chased him out of towns and how people want him dead and talking about how families are going to be torn apart and how he's going to bring a sword because what he speaks is true and it's divisive. Right? Unfortunately, that's the reality. And John recognizes that here in this, this writing. But he also says that we have some hope that will be different than we are now. So there's, I don't really know how to talk about this because I think what John's talking about is something that obviously us in this room haven't experienced yet. And so I don't know firsthand how to like form this thought through experience, and I'm sure you don't either. But what John is saying is even though the world doesn't know us, in verse 3... We are God's children, and because we're God's children, he's going to essentially, the way I think about it is, he's going to allow us to grow into something. You know, that's the hope of being a child, right, is that you grow up. Scripture talks about that a lot. Paul talks about that in a very <coughs> practical sense, like you grow into maturity in Christ. You grow into spiritual things. You take on, uh, as the Hebrew writer says, right, like the meat of the word, and you give up the milk, and you start growing in strength and faith. What John is saying here is not so much that practical side, but what he's relating to is maybe a spiritual hope, maybe an eternal focus. And he's saying, look, you're going to grow up as a child of God into something that we don't even really fully know yet. Like we can't quite understand what that is. I would assume it's because we can't. It's the same kind of thing that prevents us from understanding fully God. Like, I know God because I know his words. That's how he introduces himself. In fact, you go back to the Old Testament. He's like, hey, don't try to picture me. Don't make idols and images, but know my commandments. Know the truth of my words, right? I don't really know God in the way that I hope to know him. And I don't even know God in the way that God talks about one day knowing him, right? And I think it's that same sense in which John writes these verses now what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears and i think he's speaking of jesus when jesus appears again we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is 
That's the beautiful hope of being a believer and walking with Jesus is that even the world, even though the world doesn't know us, we know Jesus and we will know him in a way in the future that we can't even imagine knowing yet. And we'll be like him in a way in the future that even though we are like him now, we'll still be far greater. I think an application of this, um, just in these first three verses here, is that obviously we all need to continue to strive and to work and to focus on being children of God and walking in the light, as John has already talked about. But I think you also need to embrace being a stranger to the world. Um, I don't think anyone in this room would like decline that and say, like, I don't accept that. I don't want that, or even I didn't know that. But I would also challenge you to embrace it. I think my feeling about that oftentimes is like I'm neutral towards it. Like I accept the reality of that, but I wish it wasn't so. And so I kind of end up in this like, eh, maybe I can mitigate it. Maybe I can kind of make it a neutral thing in my life because I'll be personable. I'll be nice to people. And like, and I'm not saying don't do those things. But what I'm saying is embrace it in the sense that Jesus embraced it and just say, like, this is the reality. Because of my unique parentage, because I am spiritually born, the world is not going to understand. And just as Jesus told us, it's going to resist and even fight us when the opportunity arises or where there is a kind of a point of division, right? a point of difference. I think the, the challenge and the application is to be a child of God and embrace the world not knowing or understanding you. That's that's what I thought of from the first three verses. I think another application, um, or maybe another point of focus on these first three verses is embrace the hope that we will see God. We will be more like him than we are now, and we will see him, I love this phrase, as he is. I would insert, if this were Josh's translation of the bible i might say something like as he actually is because i think there's a sense in which we see god in his fullness when he comes again we'll get we'll get to be a part in such a way that we haven't yet because we shed what is earthly and we leave it behind let's move on to verse uh verses four through six here i'm editing myself as i go along so Uh, Verses 4 through 6, let's read these together. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that uh, that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Really... This whole, uh, I guess, paragraph, you could say, to about verse 10 is centered on this idea. I think 4 through 6 presents it clearly. Depending on your translation of the Bible that you're reading from, um, it might even just say him who sins instead of what mine said to keep on sinning. But that is the accurate translation as far as people much more uh, informed and educated in this say that's actually the right way to read this is this idea of continuance it's this idea of it's carrying on it's not like a one-off thing it's like you are modeled in this way and so when we look at these verses 
Everyone who makes a practice of, or that is to say continues in sin, right, practices lawlessness. I'm not a lawyer. I don't think anyone in this room is. But that's an interesting statement to say sin equals lawlessness or sinning equals lawlessness. Um, And in fact, as you continue to read through this, Jesus appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. By definition, Jesus appeared to take away lawlessness. Or Jesus appeared to take away... um, Or sorry, and in him there is no lawlessness. No one who abides in Jesus says sins or keeps on sinning. That is to say, you might insert lives in lawlessness. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, Jesus. I think it's really important to understand that this is not saying that those in Christ never make mistakes. I don't think that's a fair reading of this text and just experientially can't be true or none of us No one ever has been in Christ. Peter had to be rebuked. If anyone was ever in Christ, it should have been the apostles. And we know that they made mistakes. So the fair reading of this text, and I think most people understand this, but is worth saying, is that you are not in Christ if your life has not made a point to give up the sin that you maybe once were a part of, or maybe has made a point to avoid it. Maybe there's sins that you look at and you say, you know, I've never really done that one. But now that I'm in Christ, I'm making a point to not ever do that. Right. That's what chapter one was about when John was talking about God is light and in him is no darkness. I think chapter three, this is just another way to say it. Right? When he says that in ch- here in these verses in verse six. Sorry, verse five. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I think that's John's way, another way of saying in him there is no darkness. In him there is no lawlessness. If we're in a walk after Jesus, we walk in such a way that is of the light. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, however you want to phrase it, and you have a pattern of sin in your life, What John is telling you is you need to rethink your parentage. Maybe you're not actually a son of God. In fact, John, I don't even think would be as kind as I am in saying that you might not be. He would say you're not. If you look at your life and you see just sin, like if you're being objective about it and you say, okay, what are the sins? And then you lay out your life and you say, yeah, there's a lot of similarities here. He's going to say, okay, well, then you're not a son of God. You're not a child of God, and certainly you're not walking in the light. Because as you continue in verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. And I would insert, don't deceive yourself. Right? That's what we do oftentimes. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, guess who his dad is? Is of the devil. 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John's really plain about this. If you have a practice of sin in your life, your dad is the devil. That's your parentage, right? Jesus said things like that in his life. People would make claims about being sons of Abraham, and he'd be like, no, you're sons of the devil, right, of Satan. John's saying the same thing. If you look at your life, don't deceive yourself. Be honest about it. Don't let other people trick you. If you see sin in your life and you're not like chasing that away and you're not repenting of those things, living like living, fighting those things in a godly manner or, or dealing with them as Jesus would, then your dad is the devil. Let it be simple. If you do righteous things and you have righteous deeds, then that's what God came to establish is your ability to do righteous things. Titus 2 talks about that. He created a people to be zealous for good works. Like you couldn't ever really do anything good until you actually were cleansed of your sin and shown what good is, right? Well, if that's you, if you've been shown what good is and you've been cleansed of your sins and you're living righteously, then conversely, you should have no concern about your parentage. You can know I'm a child of God. The last thing that is brought up in verse 10 um, is really where the rest of the chapter goes, and that is concerning the love of your brother. Um, and John takes a special interest in this topic. And John says some things that, again, if Joshua writing this letter, I don't know if I would have thought to write. I don't know if I would have felt comfortable writing them, frankly. But John does, and I trust it is true because of what we understand about the gospel. But he equates the love of your brother as really being kind of the, the crucible for everything else in your spiritual life. And that begins to be reflected in verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to talk more about this in a moment, but just think about that. John thinks that loving is your brother, you loving your brother, him loving his brother is so important that he thinks you can look at that in someone's life and tell whether or not they've been born of God. Like that is the external thing that he points to that says that's your barometer. If, if you or anyone else shows a love, a true love, we're going to talk about what that is, for their brother, then they've been born of God. So hang on to that as we move forward here. Um, all right. One other thing that I want to say, just as far as application from this text before we move on to verse 11, and we've, we've hit on it, but I'm going to just, we've kind of gone, danced around it, is that religious righteousness, we might call that like going to church and reading your Bible and things like that is not the same as a life of righteousness. Like I can 
lead some songs and show up on Sundays and go to Bible studies and not be a child of God. And the point in this text that one of the points that John is making or an implication of the points John is making is that one who has been born of God and lives righteously is a child of God. So I just wanted to make that point. If you're somebody who kind of feels that that describes you, then John would say you're not a child of God. You have to have a life of righteousness. All right, so let's move forward into verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you that you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. We talked about um, in chapter one and chapter two, these purpose statements of John. In chapter one, he gives one or two of them. I can't remember. Like, this is why I'm writing to you. Typically, you'd assume that someone might have one of those. John has like seven or eight, I can't remember, of those. In chapter 2 alone, I think it was like 11 or 12 total. But we have one in chapter 3. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. It's kind of a purpose statement. Like, this is my point, right? That we should love one another. We talked about this in prior chapters because he said this already in this book, and he's kind of circling back on it. Um, this this is one of those like new and old things. Certainly, God's commandments have always pointed his people towards a care and an affection and a love for one another. But Jesus shows this in a new way, doesn't he? I mean, he he sacrifices himself not just for his friends, as he talks about, but for his enemies. And he gives up his life. And he makes the point that anyone who gives up his life for a friend... Like, that's a great sacrifice. That's a good thing. Jesus did it for enemies. And so John stakes a claim on this. And he says, really, that we should love one another. In fact, he goes on to say that that is evidence that you are actually full of life. Your love for your brother actually proves that you've passed from death into life. In verse um, 14 because you love your brother whoever doesn't love his brother obviously is still in death right? 
I think he gives us some practical points about what loving our brother looks like. One of them is to look at Cain as like a negative example. And that seems like an obvious one because he has a literal brother. This isn't even figurative. Like he's like, I'm going to give you a literal example. Here's Cain who had a brother, the first set of siblings ever on this planet in the history of mankind. And he blew it. Right. He got mad at his brother and he decided to kill him and literally became a murderer. Now, of course, we understand that Jesus taught that this can be figuratively true. Like, the truth is no less than Cain's truth in a, in a sinful, spiritual way. But it doesn't have to be literally true. Like, you can hate your brother and be like Cain, right? But look at what he says about Cain. He was evil, and he, was, uh, he murdered his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous. I can know whether or not I'm a child of God if I hate my brother because of the righteous things they do. Like if I have any part of me that wants to stand against my brother because of them living righteously and pursuing righteous things, then that is a sign that I am not a child of God. In practical terms, that can mean a lot of very specific things. And I have no way of going through all of those. But you can imagine what some specifics of that might look like, right? I've known of instances where I have friends or friends of friends that have experienced times where they've encountered some hate or some disdain for going to church from people that they thought loved them, right? And people that even they thought loved them that claimed to be of Christ, and they encountered some dissonance, some difference on that. Well, that should be a sign to those people that they don't love righteousness. And maybe they're more like Cain than they thought. Um, you know, I could, I could be really frustrated about... Uh, I'll just use Kirby as an example since she's not here. She can't defend herself um, or be embarrassed. Like Kirby always wants to give people stuff. And a few times I've caught myself resisting her giving someone something because I just didn't want to give it. Like she's a more giving person than I am. And to me, that should have been a sign in those moments. And I think it has been. I wouldn't have phrased it this way, but this text gives me a way to frame it and says, you know what? Like maybe I am not a child of God in that moment. Right? I need to repent of that feeling. I'm being like Cain in a way. I'm, I'm, as it says here, my sister's deeds were righteous and I was resisting. I was hating her for that in a way, right? I needed to show more love for our common brethren and even Kirby um, in doing a godly thing, a righteous thing and wanting to help someone or give someone something. And so that was a sign to me. And I hope if you've had those moments... You see the truth of this text pointing you to like repent of that and pursue righteousness. And also the affirmative is in those moments, I'm reminded that I'll use continue to use that example with Kirby. When she wants to do stuff like that, not only does it tell me to repent if I resist it, to not be evil and hate righteous deeds, 
But it also tells me that my wife has passed from death into life. Like that's an evidence to me and to her, hopefully, that she is a child of God, that she's trying to love her brothers and her sisters. Verse 16 is really the crux of it, though. Like, why do we do all this? I mean, Cain's a good example of the negative of this, but Jesus is the example of what it actually looks like in the positive. I can paint a picture all day long, right, from a negative, but it's never as good as, like, the actual exposure of a photo. Like, if I take a picture, I don't want to just, like, sit on the negative, right? I want to, like, actually develop the photo. That's kind of what Cain and Abel, it's like the negative. It's like, okay, you see the inverse, You see kind of what it is, but with Jesus in verse 16, you see the reality. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our heart... Oh, sorry, that's verse 19. 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This happens in small ways. Sometimes we have trouble with rent or, you know, we have a car expense and like we think about some of these people in Africa who can't cover a $200, $300 car fix like maybe some of us can. And so they're more in, in tune with this teaching on a day-to-day need. Like they have day-to-day things that they are not prepared to cover because their circumstances, the place that they live, all the things that they don't have control over have prevented them from being able to do like we have here in the United States. That's a small example of how if we were to close our heart to those brothers and sisters, um, when they have a need that we could be supplying, we'd be like our father, Satan. We don't have a love for our brothers. But it's much bigger than just taking care of a car expense. That happens sometimes. It's much bigger than maybe helping a brother or sister cover rent, though. That happens sometimes. This is about your relationship to the people that are also children of God. If you look at God and you say, I need him and I love him and I want him, and you somehow don't say the same things to your brothers, then is God really your father? John would say, absolutely not. If you don't look at the people that have been born of God in in a similar way that you look at God, which is to make sacrifices for God, so I make sacrifices for my brothers and sisters, then you're not living as a child of God. All right, so we must rid ourselves of whatever pride, maybe like Cain had. He looked at his brother's deeds as righteous. He looked at his own as unrighteous, got upset by it because it made him look bad. There's pride there. You might also say about Cain that he just lacked faith. He wasn't actually doing what was righteous. You know, when you read Genesis, we're not given a lot of details about what exactly occurred. Actually, 1 John's more helpful in understanding the story than to me on a spiritual level than even the Genesis account is. Apparently, he wasn't very faithful. We need to get rid of whatever pride. We need to get rid of whatever faithlessness that we have so that we can really love our brothers and love other people. And you need to make sacrifices for other people. I think that application is plain, but I I would state it just so it's out there. 
if you don't make sacrifices for the people that God has saved that are children of his, then you do not love God and you are not a child of God. That's what John would tell you. It's really hard for me to stand here, by the way, in case you guys are wondering and say things like that because I always like to qualify. But that's what John says. And if I believe the teaching of God, then I can stand behind that statement as awkward as it makes me feel. That's what I need to say to myself and to you guys. I had James read that passage from Romans chapter 8 because, I mean Romans chapter 5, excuse me, because I think it helps remind us from a different writer some of the fullness of what John writes about in verses 16 through 18 when he describes how Jesus has loved us and given his life for us and how he laid down his own life and really everything. John 5, I mean, Romans 5, as James read, says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe that's a good way for us to think about this is do you demonstrate your love for your brothers? Maybe that's a good word that puts it into kind of a tangible thing. Do others, other children of God, have reason to to suspect you love them. I thought about this. Um, you guys know I like to ask questions in sermons that are very specific, pointed towards applications. Like in several lessons that I've given over the years, I've had like, here's a little quiz that I came up with that maybe helps us figure out where we stand in light of this thing. One of the things that I didn't put this in here, but one of the things I started thinking about when I came to Romans 5 that word demonstrate, God demonstrated his love for us. Do I demonstrate my love? So I started thinking about all of you guys specifically and thinking, have I demonstrated to Angela that I love her? Like, would Angela have examples in her life that says, yeah, I know Josh cares about me. What about James? What about Kate? What about Daniel? Like, and I kind of started going through that list. And when I was being really objective, I was like, man, this is like 50-50. Like some of you, I can think of things, and others of you, I can't really think of anything. And my memory is not perfect. I'm not saying that that's the thing. But if you start going down that list and you have big gaps, you might start to think, maybe I haven't really demonstrated my love like Jesus demonstrates love. Um, so anyway, maybe that's a good, good thing for us to think about, a really easy way to kind of think through it. Finally, what John says in this text. Whoever keeps, in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, but also, notice this part, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Ultimately, we could say, keep God's commandments. One of them is to love your brother. The Old Testament described it as your neighbor, which literally would be true because that would have been your brother. Israelites lived together, right? And while we don't necessarily live next door to each other, keep the commandment. Love your brother. All right. That's all I had to say about this text. Certainly there's a lot more you could dive into in First John chapter 3. Um, but I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope one, 
It's a good study of First John, reminding you of the things John wrote about. But also, too, just that we as a group would be embodying the things John's talking about. And for us to do that as a group, obviously that means that you as a person and I, me as a person have to be embodying these things. So be thinking about that. Richard's going to lead a song for us. This song is meant to be a time just of reflection and thoughtfulness. Think about the commitment you've made to God, commitment you've made to each person in this room. And if you have something that you'd like this group to, to help you with or to be thinking about on your behalf, um, let one of us know during this song or after the song, you can kind of say, hey, I've been thinking about this. Raise your hand or whatever you need to do to get our attention. Um, because this is kind of the time we hope that those requests and those needs might be made manifest to us so that we can pray for you and help you. Richard.